you know, every fraud that we talk about is, is, a, is a situation where really smart people do really stupid stuff. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, formerly known as Improv is No Joke, where it's all about believing that strong communication skills are the best way in delivering your technical accounting knowledge and growing your business. An effective way of building stronger communication skills is by embracing the principles of applied improvisation. Your host is Peter Margarita, CPA, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant, and he will interview financial professionals and business leaders to find their secret in building stronger relationships with their clients, customers, associates, and peers, all the while growing their businesses. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 21, and my guest today is Gary Ziney, CPA, and his consulting practice provides CPAs, attorneys, and executives with hands-on experience in fraud, auditing, and corporate strategy performance improvement. Prior to forming his consulting practice, Gary was an assistant vice president of corporate finance at The Ohio Company, a Columbus, Ohio investment banking firm. He also spent more than five years in treasury and finance at Wendy's International, where he was responsible for mergers and acquisitions, financial and SEC reporting, and corporate finance. Gary has the only speakers bureau in the country specializing in white-collar criminals, the pros and the cons. His 40-plus ex-con speakers tell their stories of how and why they embezzled took kickbacks, and cooked the books to the tune of $2.7 billion. His speakers include Mark Morse, who's a former CFO at ZZZ Best, Paul Allen, who's an ex-bank CEO, and Dunlap Canyon, who was the largest real estate closing attorney in Memphis, just to name a few. Our conversation centers around fraud and why people decide to cross the ethical line. As Gary points out, a large majority of fraud start out very, very small, but then spiral out of control. Before we get to the interview, I want to share with you some exciting news. In the coming weeks, this podcast will be part of the C-Suite Radio Library. C-Suite Radio is the home of the top business podcast for leaders in the C-Suite and those who aspire to be. C-Suite Radio is a library of weekly online radio shows that explore the challenges, successes, and failures of guests who are successful entrepreneurs, C-Suite leaders, thought leaders, and innovators. I'm very excited to be part of the C-Suite Library and will let you know when the podcast can be found there. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Gary Ziney. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today, I've got the man, the myth, the legend, the gentleman who knows more about fraud than most people. Uh, today, my guest is Mr. Gary Ziney. And Gary, thank you so very much for taking time to be on my podcast today. Hey, Pete, it's great to talk to you again. Looking forward to it. Now, as you guys heard his voice, Man, he's got a radio voice. I, I need that voice, but he doesn't do radio. He, um, he owns a company called Pros and Cons, and he 
talks about fraud and has he hires ex-cons to go out and teach fraud, teach ethics to the CPA community. Would that be a correct statement? That is right. <laughs> and it, um, it's a really interesting process. I've been doing this 25 years since 1995. And you're right. The uh, One of our philosophies or one of our um, business models is if you don't know how to commit fraud, how are you going to catch it? Because everybody that I've ever talked to that's going to prison for fraud, they didn't know how until they figured it out. So it's not like a magic skill that you're born with. It's a learned skill. And we very often, not we, because I've not done it, <laughs> like I haven't gotten caught yet. It's, it's, it's something that you just kind of, it starts small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, I wrote an article for the New Jersey CPA Society a few years ago called Fraud and Theft Start Small. And if you look at the, at the pattern, because most people, the only thing they ever see when they read about a, a fraud case or hear about it, oh, you know, Bernie Madoff blew up and it was $65 million or the bookkeeper stole $2 million. Well, it didn't, they never start at the amount you read about in the paper. They always start small and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger, just like your 15-year-old a curfew on Friday night is 11 o'clock and they come home at 1130 and you don't do uh, and you don't do anything about it. The following weekend, your 15 year old is going to come home or the following Friday, your 15 year old is going to come home at 12 o'clock because by coming home at 1130, what they're doing is they're testing the control. What's the control? You're the parent. You're the control. And and employees and clients and staff and bosses do exactly the same thing. Why? Be because it's human nature. Right. And so you're right. That, uh, there, all of this stuff we're going to talk about in the podcast, everybody has seen all this stuff. So basically what we're going to do, Pete, is we're going to take the same information and we're going to reframe it so people can relate to it. So my big question, I don't think I've ever asked this. I mean, I've known you for a number of years, but I don't think I've ever asked this question. How did you get into this business? How did, how did pros and cons start? I got lost on vacation. <laughs> that's okay. everybody's reaction. My, you know, no, I did not say this. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen the data, but 80% of all the most profitable uh, products and services started by accident. And usually it's when a um, customer figures out how to use the product or first service for something that the company that sold it to them what didn't anticipate. So what happened was, uh, and by the way, that's a great profitability strategy is if you want to know how to make more money, talk to your customers, find out how they're using your product or your service. And they'll tell you way, what they're doing, things you would never think of in a thousand years. It's not, you know, very few things that are really, very really profitable is somebody sitting in a corner thinking it up. Right. Because you got to do it. You got to use it to, to think of. So what happened with me was by accident, which was, is also one of the primary ways that fraud gets caught. That's how these two things are related. What happened was I was in Washington, D.C. I was uh, teaching there and my sister and her husband lived in D.C. at the time. So I would always uh, teach during the summer. I would take my daughter, who at this point was 13 years old, and she was just starting to really get into clothes and things like that. So 
she wanted to go down to the Potomac Mills Outlet Mall in Northern Virginia. And she's always been a really frugal shopper like I am. <laughs> so I, we'd flown over from Columbus, Ohio, and I borrowed my sister's car. We're going down I-95. And I can't remember what exit the mall was on. I didn't have enough sense to ask my sister. I thought, I, of course, being a guy, I knew where it was. Oh, I didn't have to. Oh. I couldn't remember. been yep. years since I'd been there. And so I stop at a gas station. I get off the freeway. I just wonder, pulling the first gas station off on the side street there. And get the directions. I walk out. I look across the street. And here's an old Heckinger hardware stores. Now, Heckinger clothes, oh, it's got to be 20 or 25 years ago. And the easiest way to think about Heckinger is it was like a half-size Lowe's. Okay. So think of a low, typical Lowe's store. And <clears throat> there was... Um, um, they'd taken the sign, they had the Heckinger sign off the front, and they put up a big banner that says Giant Book Sale. I love to read. So I pull across, I get out of the car, I, the automatic doors open up, and I walk in. And the only book standing up on edge on the... Now imagine walking into a half-size Lowe's. Let me set the stage for you, the visual here. Imagine walking into a half-size Lowe's, all the floor-to-ceiling shelving is gone, and it's full of folding leg tables with books a foot or a foot and a half deep. Okay. So it looks like a sea of books. So this is a remainder, what's called a remainder bookstore. What they do is they buy overstock and slightly damaged, and they don't even know what they're getting. They literally buy them by the, by the, the, the truckload, semi-truckload, and they buy by the pound, <laughs> like 10 cents pound. They don't even know what they're going to get. So, so imagine this sea of books. And the only book standing up on edge like this, so you can see it on the very first table. So automatic doors open. Imagine mm -hmm. this. Automatic doors open. First table right in front of me. The, the only book on that table standing up on edge. All the others were laid down flat like this. This Got one it. Up on edge. Got it. Got it. Was a book on fraud. I paid $2 for it, and that's how the whole thing started. <laughs> so, so I, it took me about, oh, the, the book was Faking It in America by, by a guy by the name of Daniel Axe, A-K-S-T, and uh, Axe was a reporter, business reporter at the LA Times back then. This is 1994. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, it was 87 when he was at the, at the Times. And <clears throat> so... He writes this book about this guy by the name of Barry Minko. And <laughs> Barry yeah. Minko, M-I-N-K-O-W. Yeah, 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 yeah. Committed one of the most, probably the most outrageous fraud of the 1980s. I mean, it's a classic story. This is so outrageous. The Security and Exchange Commission even changed rules because of what this guy did. This okay. is 1987. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I paid $2 for the book. I take two or three nights to read through it. I realized when I get to the end, because he wrote it from a business reporter's perspective. So I realized when I get through with it, I need to write my own book for CPAs on fraud. And I'll use this as a classic case. So why use ZBest as a classic case? And the answer is because Barry started the company when he was 16 years old and he'd never gone to college. And by the time he was 21 years old, he'd sold $100 million. Wow. And he, he had five auditors over, a, uh, I'm sorry, he had three auditors over a five-year period of time. 
He fooled a sole practitioner for two years. He fooled a small Southern California firm for two years. And then finally, they were going to take the company public. And now I'm thinking about this. Mm -hmm. Never been to college. Yeah. He fools three accounting firms. So if you remember the big junk bond investment banking firm, Drexel Burnham. Yeah. And Michael Milken created the entire junk bond market based on his master's thesis in college. That if you made a wide enough dispersed investment in junk bonds, you'd end up with a premium yield without a lot of additional risk because you, you diversify. And, and that's how that's how Drexel Burnham uh, got to be a world powerhouse investment banking firm was through Milken's idea. And so Milken was in Hollywood at this point, by Beverly Hills at this point, and Milken and his team were getting ready to do a $600 million public offering for ZBest. And they said, Milken said, um, I should say Drexel said, uh, we don't do offerings and IPOs with anything other than big eight accountants, big eight firms. Mm-hmm. And I used to be an investment banker and did IPOs in private places closely. And, and so the, the issue from an investment banking perspective, it, it has nothing to do with the quality of the work. It's a marketing issue because what happens is the way the human brain works, among others, is that if we if we recognize what we're looking at, we tend not to evaluate it. We assume the new information from that same well-known source has the same level of quality and credibility as what we're used to. We don't independently bounce it. So the marketing issue is if you're if an investor is going through a prospectus, no, I think I'll buy $10 million of this, and they see an accounting firm that says, <clears throat> the financial statements are fairly stated, blah, 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 sign Joe Snard and Associates. Well, who the hell is Joe Snard and Associates? And so it creates this little voice right. in the back of their mind, I wonder if I can rely on the financial statements. Versus if they see any big name firm, oh, I know them, and they go right on by. So the reason to require a big A firm is to avoid the creation of doubt in the investor's mind. <laughs> so <clears throat> at this point, Barry is using a local uh, local CPA firm in the Los Angeles area where the company was based. And oh, here's an interesting point. Uh, remember I said they sold, sold a sole practitioner for two years? Right, right. <clears throat> the sole practitioner was in New Jersey. Huh. It's a California firm. Yeah. So. Why? Yeah. Answer. Because they're not going to get on a plane every time they need to look at an invoice and come right. out. It's easy. So, so Barry and his CFO, Mark Morse, who's one of my top speakers, Mark was the CFO. They go out and interview all the big eight firms. Now, this is 1984, late 84, early 85. And, and so we still had big eight at that point. Mm, so right. They interviewed all the big eight firms. And they picked Ernst. It could have been anybody. I mean, it just happened to be Ernst. This is all public information, so I'm not talking, telling stories out of school here. So the question is, if they interviewed all the AA firms, why did they pick Ernst? And Barry and Mark have both said that the reason we picked Ernst was because Ernst had a small satellite office not far from ZBass. And if we went with Ernst, we would be audited out of that office and we would be a big fish in a small pond. Whereas if we went with any of the other firms, they didn't have a satellite office, we'd be audited out of 
the main office downtown and we'd be a little fish in a great big pond and we couldn't push them around like we could somebody who's local or a big part of their business. Right, right. So that was one reason. The second reason was it was they have both said now, well, not this was true. I don't know. It's just what they've said. Of course, they've both been to prison. So, you know, do you believe not? (laughs) And so they um, have both said that the reason that they picked the Ernst folks is after interviewing all of the uh, people that it was clear to Mark and Barry that the folks from Ernst in this little satellite office knew the least about the industry. And if you know the least about the industry, you'll be the easiest to pull. So before you go any further, what industry was this? Because I don't, I don't think you clar- clarified that. Right. And so it was name of the company, if you want to look it up, was 4Z, ZZZZ, Best Carpet Cleaning Construction. So Barry starts this carpet cleaning company when he was 16 years old, literally in his parents' garage. And the reason he started carpet cleaning was his mother was a telemarketer for a Southern California uh, carpet cleaning company. And Barry used to help her. And so he knew some about business. And he starts the carpet cleaning company. When he's working out the gym one day and he bumps into like the guy on the treadmill next to him who by complete coincidence happens to be a salesman or a carpet cleaning supply company. Hmm. And so he would sell, you know, the soap and, and, and shampoo and, and, and would rent the, sell the steam cleaning machines and things like that. Well, Bear, of course he's 16, he doesn't have any money. And the guy, the guy takes a liking to him. And agrees to lease Barry the machines. Okay. And that's how I got started at the age of 16. Okay. So by the time Barry was 21, he had, just to give you a frame of reference, he had 1,300 employees. Their advertisements, their TV ads were so good. And they are hysterical, by the way. There are a few of them. I've got a few of them posted on our website. The TV ads were so good, they won Clio Awards. Now, Cleo's are like the Oscars and the Academy Awards for TV advertising. They're absolutely hysterical. And you can go onto YouTube and just type in ZZZ Best TV commercials, and you'll get a whole bunch of them. And this is from 30 years ago. And they're, I mean, still today, you'll laugh. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, Barry, being 16, he can't get a checking account in California. You have to be 18. So he would go clean somebody's carpets, and he did mostly homes and real small businesses. So he'd clean somebody's home carpets. Usually it was a wife that was there, Mm -hmm. and so she'd hand him a check. Well, he doesn't have a checking account. He can't cash it. So one of the questions I always get is, well, how did the fraud start? Well, Barry can't cash his checks. So Rick's liquor store is two blocks away from his house where Eddie's mom lived. He goes down to Rick's liquor store, and he would endorse the checks that these Customers had given him for 75 bucks to clean the carpets. He would endorse the checks over to Rick and then <clears throat> give Rick his bills to pay the, the lease on the machines and the soap bill and, and things like that. Well, one day, uh, and, and by the way, and, and Rick would, would then make up money orders for Barry. So one day, Barry's there doing his money order thing, and Rick gets a telephone call and goes in the back of the store to take it. Well, Barry's short that week, so Barry just reaches in the back of the money order box, takes one out, puts it in the machine, punch, 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 ka-ching, 
the whole, entire $100 million fraud started with a $200 stolen money order. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then five years later, it ended up $100 million. So, so <clears throat> moral of the story is that when, <clears throat> when your teenage, just like when your teenager comes home a half an hour late and you don't do anything about it mm-hmm. because it's immaterial, it's a, it's a small amount of being late. Right. Then what's going to They're testing the system. And so, Frauds, if you don't do something about fraud or somebody just doing something wrong, like cheating on their expense. So the expense report might be a thousand dollars and they turned in a $12 fake cab ride. If you don't bust them over it, that's assuming you catch it. You're not going to catch all this stuff. But when you do catch them, if you don't do something about it and make the punishment worse than the crime, they're going to do it again and it will get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's the way it always starts. So it gets the, your business got started by buying a book in this bookstore about fraud. Learned about uh, ZZ Best, and you said that the CFO Mark Morse is one of your speakers who goes out. So your business model is you hire ex cons to go out and present basically what they've done to teach accountants the aspect of fraud so they can be better at detecting it. We're not teaching the accountants to conduct fraud. We're teaching them how, what to look for, correct? Correct. And well, you know, people say, well, in fact, I'll give you an example. Um, one day there was a really interesting article. We've been profiled in the Wall Street Journal probably four or five, uh, maybe six times, New York Times. And the first time uh, there was an article um, about a small California company, this was like in the late 1990s, didn't have very much internet back then. And I wanted to contact this small California company and I couldn't find them. Brand new startup. So I know a bunch of reporters at the Wall Street. So called him up. His name was uh, Joshua Harris Prager and said, Hi, my name's Gary and uh, really liked your article that you wrote yesterday. And could you give me how I need, I'd like to talk to the folks uh, at the company you wrote about yesterday? So he was really nice and gave me um, gave me the, a name and a phone number. And, and he says, well, and Gary, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I teach people how to commit fraud. <laughs> <laughs> there was like dead silence on the other end of the phone. And like 10 seconds goes by and he says, isn't that illegal? <laughs> yeah, this is before 911. Right. And, <clears throat> and so you wouldn't joke about this stuff mm. now. And I said, no. It's not illegal. It's only. It's just like bombs. It's not illegal to 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 uh, design a bomb. It's only illegal to actually do it and explode it. But having the knowledge how to do it is perfectly legal. So we used to get a lot, as you you know, we talked about earlier. We used to get a lot of. Well, we used to get some pushback. You know, you're you're using next cons, and my my uh, response always is, well, if that weren't okay, or if it's not okay, then why does the FBI do it? Hmm. Because the FBI has a lot of crooks come in and teach agents at Quantico. We we right. taught at Quantico years ago. Uh, but if you don't understand that, why do you why do you think the FBI has profiles? Right. Why do you think they have former they have crooks or hopefully former crooks hmm. uh, teaching the agents? Because it's a whole different mindset, and it's like place. Well, where's the serial rapist or where's the bank robber going to hit next? Because everybody has patterns mm-hmm. and use those patterns as part of the control process. And so we used to have a lot of pushback. And so my response would always be, 
Yeah, I'm sh- uh, I understand why you don't like it, but let me ask you a question. If it's not okay, why is the FBI doing it? Yeah. And so if the FBI can, can learn from people that have done wrong, what, why are we too good to learn? So we, we used to get a fair amount of pushback 20, 25 years ago. Rarely get any now because it's much more common. Um, but back in, back in when I first started 25 years ago, nobody had ever brought an actual white-collar criminal to class to teach. Right. And so I'm the I'm the buffer between my clients and you know CPA societies and banks and et cetera, et cetera, and and my ex con. So if they, anything ever goes wrong, then it's on me. So can you list name some of the the ex cons that you have in your stable that go out and um, uh, uh, teach for you? Yeah. Um, well, probably my most requested speaker. Well, I've got actually got two. One is Mark Moore, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark was the chief financial officer of ZBest. Mark did four and a half years in federal prison. And uh, when I first started this up uh, and created my speakers bureau for white collar criminals, we have 45 speakers now. Um, half are white collar criminals. And uh, they range from uh, Terry Lynn Norwood, who was a bookkeeper, stole $18,000 to one of my newest speakers, Paul Allen, who has a PhD in finance, was a finance professor, and long story short, did 44 months in federal prison for $2.7 billion, with a B, with B, $2.7 billion bank fraud, and everything in between. And so we've got theft, we've got cooking the book. And never, by the way, never stole a dime. It's all cooking the books, keep the bank float. That's another hour-long story. Um, but regardless of of the uh, of what kind of entity that they worked at, whether it was government, nonprofit, public company, private company, um, or or the dollar amount, whether it was eighteen thousand or two point seven billion, there are, there are several really common elements. One is they don't think they're going to get caught. So ego gets in the way. Ego gets in the way. Well, <clears throat> and, you know, well, I read about a case and I won't be that stupid. No, but you'll do something else stupid that'll get you caught. <laughs> and, and they just don't think about that. So why would they be so stupid to think they're not going to get caught? Well, let me ask you a question. Anybody ever break the speed limit when you drive your car? Everybody. Everybody, including me. <laughs> and so why do we do it? It's illegal because we think we're going to get away with it. Just the same as somebody cheating on their expense report, no, or 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 right. cooking the books at the bank for two point seven billion dollars. Right. And so one is uh, Paul Allen. Mark Moore's is is probably my most, one of my two most requested speakers. The other most requested speaker is Sam Antar, who committed these the Crazy Eddie fraud. Also Crazy Eddie. Like Crazy Eddie, that was a retail electronics dealer in New York and had some stores in New Jersey. World famous case. And because both of those cases, by the way, are in every accounting audit textbook. And so we do a lot of university presentations. And I typically will do it when I'm traveling and teaching. I'll go to the local university of UNC or you know, Southern mm-hmm. USC out in California. And, and then I'll Skype one of my speakers in. And the students and even the faculty, they've been teaching this stuff for years. They've never actually talked to a real white collar criminal. Yeah. So it makes it real. And the students and the faculty just love it. Oh, yeah. I, I, if I was a student or just you know, even, even a CPA to hear 
from the one who perpetrated the fraud and how they did it, that would be much more intriguing than, don't get me wrong, Gary, if you were up there basically right. telling, telling their story, it's not that authentic. But there is a question I have, and and, and you had told me there's, there's when you approach like Mark or, or anybody, in order for them to be a speaker in your stable, they have to answer a question. Yeah. There are, uh, I get, I get, a, I, not many people know this, but uh, every federal prison subscribes to the Wall Street Journal. Okay. At least the last time I checked a few years ago. And so I mentioned we've been profiled four or five times. So every prison, the white collar criminals tear those articles out and keep them. So I get all, they're, and they're passed down from one generation of white collar criminals to the next. And so I get, uh, I get two or three letters a month that are handwritten. Mm -hmm. Saying, hi, my name's Joe Smith, and and I'm going to be out of prison in six months. Can I be a speaker? Right. And the majority of them think I'm going to give them a platform to stand up and say, I didn't do anything wrong. Now, I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. So the there are two questions um, and two things they have to do is one requirement is they have to be out of prison. That always helps. Yeah, that always helps. That always helps. <laughs> and the second is that they have to admit what they did, take responsibility for it, and be, and they have to answer any question that somebody will put to them because it's part of the crime. Right. The only exception that I, like I, we do a lot of media interviews. And so I'm always on the line, kind of uh, moderating. And so I tell the reporter, you know, you can ask them any question you want, except the only thing that's off limits is their personal sex life. Unless it's got something to do with the crime. Right. Uh, like you stole money, have an extramarital affair, then it's fair game because it's part of the crime. Right. But you're you're not going to go down that trail just to be sensational. And right. if you if I'm going to tell you right out, and if you won't commit to not talking about that, we're not going to do the interview. And if you commit to not talking about that, and you do it anyway, we'll never talk to you again. Yeah. So you're you're in charge of how uh, of this interview. So. Um, Probably nine out of ten letters that I get from prison, they think they're they're going to be able to send up and say, "Hi, I didn't do it." And I've always I tell every one of my speakers, "You ever do that, and you may well be innocent and didn't do anything wrong." That's not what the jury said, right? So we have to go with what the jury said. And so if you stand up and protest, "I didn't do anything wrong. I was wrongly convicted." Yeah, no one, nobody's going to believe you. You're going to have right. a really bad hair day at work because you got 600 people <laughs> in the audience that aren't going to believe the thing you're saying. And I've only got one speaker where that actually fits and is the right thing. And it was a guy I've known for 25 years who's an attorney and was convicted of 107 counts of securities fraud. And long story, I won't bore you with. I mean, that's another, you know, huh. two, that's huh. a two hour story. And he spent, spent, uh, his entire life savings, something like that, six or seven million dollars, fought it all the way to the state Supreme Court and got every single conviction overturned. Wow. Yeah. I've never seen it. It's wow. the only time I've ever seen it. Wow. Seen it. So those are Mark and Mark and Sam are probably two most uh, requested speakers. In fact, uh, Sam is speaking at uh, Auburn University um, this year. And the uh, other speakers, uh, Paul Allen, the bank CEO I mentioned, and um, then we've got 
got uh, for smaller entities, we've got some bookkeepers, we've got some government folks, we've got uh, for, got a couple former CP, well, Sam Antar from uh, from Crazy Eddie. Uh, as I said, famous case. Every student studies that case in college. And Sam, Sam was a CPA mm-hmm. and, and lost his license. And, and uh, he does a lot of presentations, a lot for law enforcement, FBI training and, and, and local law enforcement. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really f- people, once they start to, to listen and say, oh, my God, I, th- I didn't know that's the way they think. And so what listening to white collar criminals, what it does, it gives you the ability to pick up on very small, subtle, verbal variances and visual, like how they how they people move their hands or how they mm. sit in their chair, stuff that most people it wouldn't even occur to them that there's a there is a, a nefarious reason that they changed how they cross their legs, and mm. so it, it's kind of like interviewing techniques, but from the people who who tried to make it work but failed. Because they ended up going to prison. So there's one I want to talk about, and actually, this was kind of this person is I don't believe uh, is is part of your stable, but you interviewed him for uh, for CPE. It was I don't know how long it was, but it was a live interview with Scott London. Correct. And that was what about 18 months ago. Uh, that, <laughs> how time flies. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that was June 25th and 27th, night, uh, 2014. 14. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, we did. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, so, so, uh, Scott London was a, uh, former partner of KPMG, KPMG out in LA. Right. Share that, share that story with, with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it, there's a there's a degree of you know how could you be so stupid with the degree of geez you know that I'm, that that's really sad that that you, that the, you did that and just before people think I'm feeling sorry for them I don't feel sorry for them because th- they chose to do it you know they got what they deserve and kind of as a global comment the people that this is the hardest on is the family right because. Yeah, you know, there's there's a real famous saying in the uh, criminal justice system or or environment. You know, it's not just the person that goes to jail that does time; the whole family does time right. because it changes the entire family dynamic. Uh, people end up on welfare, so that wasn't the case with Scott, by the way. So Scott was uh, just give you a little background. So what he did will make some sense. Is and, and I when, when we when we teach. It's really helpful to give the lay of the land because if you just say, well, you know, I was a CPA, I was a CFO, you know, whatever. I was a controller, I was a bookkeeper, and here's what I did. Everybody say, well, that was really stupid. I'd never do that. Oh, yes, you would. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where the background comes in because nobody just wakes up one day and says, I think I'm going to commit fraud. I mean, that just <laughs> isn't the way it works. Right. And, and so there's usually an environment where a growing sense of dread or uh, or some something in their environment, like the children are sick and you can't treat, you can't can't afford the doctor, right. or one one spouse lost their job and the house is going into foreclosure. Right. So there's always there's always a backstory. They're all different, yeah. but the common element is there was always something going on right. that caused the change of behavior because 
we don't do like lifelong bank robbers. We do people, you know, my speakers are people that were the typical, you know, honest, other than breaking the speed limit when we drive, mm-hmm. the typical honest business people of all different, all different uh, um, uh, ethnicities and, and backgrounds and types of entities and sizes of entities they worked at. And the common element, whether it was 18,000 or 2.7 billion, the common element is what was going on that caused them when they got to an ethical decision point to turn left instead of turning right. And so um, just to give you a thumbnail sketch of, of Scott, and again, every speaker has this story. They're all different, but they all have these backstories. So what was going on with Scott was that um, he was the regional audit partner for K. And again, this is all public information. Right. The regional audit partner for KPMG in Los Angeles, he had 500 people reporting to him in Clyde. There was 50 other partners. And early, uh, early mid-50s, 53, 54, something like that. And it was during the recession, uh, the mortgage meltdown, so 08, 09, that, 10, uh, that area, era. And so he had, he had a friend that, as I recall, and I'll probably screw some of this up, so don't hold me to 100% here, but, uh, but the general will be okay. Is he, as I recall his, his uh, story, is that he had a friend that um, had really started from, the, from their, their country club, that had really started when the wives met, because as I, I think their kids went to the same school, were in the same class or something like that. So Scott and this guy get to be friendly and they play some golf, start playing golf. And this guy owned a wholesale, I think, wholesale jewelry store mm-hmm. and we're in the recession. Well, one of the easiest purchases to pull off when we're in a recession, mm-hmm. discretionary items like jewelry. Right. So um, this guy was also a day trader. So. He starts uh, asking Scott for information because you know he knows Scott's an auditor and he's a regional partner and he's got lots of clients and both that he personally is in, you know, he's the engagement partner and also uh, oversees as a regional partner uh, other uh, of other engagement partners and so initially Scott wouldn't wouldn't tell him anything even information that was public publicly available and so. As things go on, it's um, Scott let this, this guy t- talk Scott and Scott let him. Okay, so it's a two-way street here. This guy asked and Scott did it. Uh, started telling this guy things about companies that was public information. Now, if it's public information, even if you're the auditor, it is not Ill- illegal securities law violation to share the information. It's in the public domain already. The other right. person you're talented to may not have known it, but it's still publicly available information that's available. So that's not a problem. So the problem is that starts the slippery slope. Slope. Right. And and people say, well, I'd never let that happen to me. Oh, yes, you would. That's why when you get in your car and you go on the freeway, you go up to the speed limit, then you go two miles over, then you go three miles over, then you go five, and you're driving for an hour, and then you're going 10 miles over the speed limit. Mm. Because what happens is, when your brain is bombarded by constant stimuli, the same stimuli, your brain desensitizes. So that's why you can be going 85 miles an hour on the freeway or 80 and, mm. and not even know it. 
Because as you drive for an hour, your brain becomes desensitized how fast the environment is going by. And same thing with fraud. That's why frauds always start little and get bigger and bigger and bigger. So then that evolves into telling the guy information that's already public. Long story short, this was a four-hour webinar, ethics webinar, so mm-hmm. I'll it here. And so that finally evolved into calling this, Scott calling this guy and reading him the quarterly and annual earnings press release 24, 48 hours before it hit the wire service. So this guy was able to trade on inside information. And what they did, oh yeah, it gets better. What they didn't know, apparently, was that the SEC has a fairly sophisticated algorithmic (laughs) system like Google does. And they look not only at the dollar amount of trade, but they look for aberrant patterns in the trades. Right. So a real common one is whenever a major M&A deal is announced, they look for aberrant trading in the shares in the two, three, four, five days before the announcement. And if there's aberrant trading, there's probably an information leak and there's a good chance somebody is trading illegally. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the FBI uh, confronts this jeweler because he's the one that's trading. The, the SEC has access to all the trades. And they confront this guy. They, long story short, they flip him, and he wears a wire. And I've, in in the um, classes I teach that has that case in it, I have a picture that was on the front page of it was either the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, or LA Times, one of those three, of Scott accepting a brown paper envelope with ten thousand dollars in the parking lot outside. The, I think it was outside the jewelry store. Yeah, and the picture was taken from the inside a FBI van with blacked out windows. Yeah, I've seen that picture. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I've got I've got video clips that were on the uh, Los Angeles, you know, TV stations. And so, you know, every fraud that we talk about is is a, is a situation where really smart people do really stupid stuff. I, that was my whole thing. I mean, he knows better. Right. I mean, I think he was like making eight hundred thousand dollars in L.A., which is well about twenty five thousand dollars here in, in Columbus, Ohio, equated. But and and the family and everything, and he felt bad for his friend so much so that he went to jail. He he didn't go to jail for feeling bad for his friend. He went to jail for what he did. Right, he felt bad for his friend. So you can right. feel bad for your friend. So yeah. you can't control your emotions. You're you know you're sad. You're happy, but you can control. Your actions. Yeah, that's where people get into trouble. And one of the one of the explanations you hear all the time when people are being sentenced or trying to explain themselves in court. Well, I was trying to help Sally out. Yeah, but you broke the law, and right. you knew better. So, and and Scott, you know, talks in he, in his presentation. Scott readily, you know, willingly um, talks about about you know <clears throat> I signed the firm's uh, ethics agreement for thirty years. I knew better. But it was, and he's gone through, and he talks about how he's gone through a lot of therapy to, to, to understand why, being an ethical person, he did such an unethical thing. And so, more of the story is that most people think that there is a bright line on ethical behavior. No, that's not the way it no. works. Ethics is not absolute, ethics is situational. And so, here's a really easy way to understand it is 
we all, like you and I and everybody listening in, we all drive five miles over the speed limit. Why? Because it's socially acceptable. That's our rationalization. Mm. Remember the triangle front? Right, exactly. Rationalization. So it's rationalization. I'm just keeping up with the flow of traffic. Mm-hmm. That's our rationalization. Well, it's illegal. That doesn't make it Ill- That right. doesn't make it. Is there such a word as unillegal? <laughs> doesn't make it. It doesn't make it legally okay. Mm-hmm. But it's socially. And somebody will always say in class will say, "Well, if you're only driving five miles over the speed limit, the cops will pass you." Well, they're breaking the law too, right? So, so, but would we? <clears throat> have you ever driven forty miles over the speed limit? No, no, I have. Fastest I ever went on my motorcycle was 105. That was like really stupid. So <laughs> dangerous. So I stopped mm. that and started skydiving. So yeah, a lot safer. Yeah, yeah safer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you remember, it's not the fall that kills. It's a sudden stop. Right. So, so understand that behavior is not absolute. It's, it's relative and it's situational. So when would you break the law driving more, driving 30 or 40 mm. miles over the speed limit? When you have a medical emergency and you're taking your child to the hospital. So your child, your child's health and well-being is more important than you staying five miles under, uh, staying under five miles over the speed limit. Right, right. So you change your behavior and break the law even more because there's something more important to you in this situation than, than the speed limit. And that's why. That's why bank CEOs cooked the books for $2.7 billion. That's why Scott uh, gave this guy uh, illegal inside information, got like $70,000. And Scott was making you know, over, over mid-six figures, mm-hmm. and he lost his CPA license, over $70,000. And you know, so he, let's say he's making you know, five or 600 a year. You multiply that times... 10 or 15 or 20 years, that's a pretty good sized number. And he lost it over $70,000. So I thought, I thought 70000 over $5 million was immaterial. Yeah. <laughs> it's, if it's uh, immaterial, why did he lose his license? Right. And I, I have read up on, on, on this. And the part that I, I think, you know, because we don't think we're going to get caught. But when we do, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and once it was known and he was... EY at the time put out an email to everybody in the company with the indictment, with that picture, and basically said nobody should have contact again with Scott London. Yeah, uh, first of all, it was KPMG, not KPMG. EY. But, okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk about EY, I've got plenty of those cases. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, give me a big name for, I and mean, you got lots of people. You know, right. it's going to happen yeah. because it's yeah. human behavior, right? Um, Yes, the firm did put out, as and my recollection is, so I can't swear to this, but uh, my recollection is, because I look at so many of these cases, and they have a lot of common elements. It's kind of like forgetting where you parked your car. Uh, yeah, all the yeah. time. Um, and yes, the, my recollection is that the firm did put out an email, and I don't remember all the content to, to that level that you just mentioned, but mm. um, told staff, uh, we're not going to have any contact with Scott. Um, so it's kind of like being banished from the tribe or um, you know, the group or some something like that. Yeah, and it, I mean, literally, if you think about it, it happened literally overnight, so he was fine one day. Right. Next day, he's more in a worse situation, and the, the firm that he's been with has completely cut him off. The, you know, the, the, you're dead to me, Scott, as the firm would say, you're, you're dead to me. And then everything that happens with his family and everything leading up to this, and, and I read some stuff that, you know, 
that he said is, I never meant to hurt anybody. It, all the, the kind of remorseful things that one would expect. But I still, why didn't you think about that? And, and you've talked about the behavioral aspects. We probably do at some point, but it's that slippery slope. It's, it's just, I'm getting I'm, a little bit. I mean, that's how Barry Madoff started small, right? Yeah, Barry Minko. Uh, no, uh, uh, Bernie Madoff. Bernie, I'm sorry. Bernie, Bernie. Yeah, yes, um, Madoff, which was absolutely astounding. It went on, that Ponzi scheme went on for 30, 30 years. Most, yeah. Pon- I think the average for Ponzi schemes is like 18 months or two years. So Madoff was just extraordinary. And, and yes, they all start small. Now, small is relative. Understand? Right. Uh, right. For example, I'll give you, an, give you an, a real example. WorldCom was the largest financial reporting fraud in the United States history, $11 billion. And the whole WorldCom fraud started with a $10 million journal entry and ended up at $11 billion. So, right. yeah, so $10 million out of $11 billion would be like the bookkeeper in a nonprofit stealing $5,000 in a $5 million nonprofit. So, the, the, the number can be different in terms of absolute 5,000 versus 10 million, but relatively speaking, they usually are about the same size. So two comments there. One, shouldn't we have known about Bernie just by his last name, made off? <laughs> I made off with the money. <laughs> made off with the money. And two, I have 600 shares of WorldCom. Would you like to buy them from me? <laughs> Yeah, uh, because the auditors signed off on the financial statement. So I, you know, I've, I've got six hundred shares. I, I actually tried to get, get the certificates so I can hang it in my office from from WorldCom. So as as we begin to wrap up with, with this, what can you give the audience? What what advice do you give the audience when you talk about this to keep them from perpetrating fraud? Or is there any advice? Well, yeah, there there's a couple of things to think about, and and. One is understand if the situation is right, if the stresses, whether it's a sick child or house payment or really common in private businesses, is getting the bank loan renewed. Yeah. And so one of the things I always say is look at where the look at what the requirements are. And in private businesses, is generally the bank loan will have covenants for working capital ratio and debt equity ratio and mm-hmm. restrictions on dividends and blah, blah, blah. Every one of those is a fraud risk because if the company doesn't make those benchmarks, then they have to renegotiate the bank loan. The interest rate's going to go up, uh, compensating balances go up, the covenants get tougher. So, so moral of the story is that every contract that the entity is, and I'll just say company generically, it could be a nonprofit government entity, but just company generically, every contract. Every legal obligation that requires some love, some something from the company, some level of performance, or some prohibition of activity is a fraud risk. Every one of them. And every one of those things better be in the audit program. And so simply knowing what these what the 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 tipping points, to steal that term from Malcolm Gladwell, knowing what the tipping points mm-hmm. are. And <clears throat> so think about this. Um the reason WorldCom made the $10 million journal entry, I mean, now WorldCom at the time was a $30 billion company. So yeah. why would they do a $10 million journal entry to, to cook the books? Because they needed to round up over half a penny to round up to the next whole penny to make the 
Wall Street consensus earnings per share, yeah. rather than if they didn't do the $10 million journal entry, it would round down and they would miss it by miss Wall Street expectations by a penny. So, and it was like 75 cents or some number. So I thought, <clears throat> I thought if you move it from, if the journal entry moved it from 74.4 to 74.6, so it would round up to 75, I thought two tenths of a penny out of 75 was immaterial. Well, if it wasn't material, they wouldn't do it. Right. By definition, when they when they cook the books, regardless of the amount, when they cook the books, or the most common one with most clients is a small business owner running personal expenses. Sir, oh. if it weren't material to them, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got a story on that one myself. Oh, I've got, I'm at, I've got five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and doing what I do. Um, so, and, and, you know, we can share all of those in, in future podcasts, but uh, it, the big picture is two things. One is understand materiality is not just about the size of the number. It's the mm-hmm. result of the size of the number. Because the audit standards say if a user would make a different decision, then the number is material. And... <clears throat> Here's, here's a, a, a way to think about that is um, there, over a, there are a hundred, like on average 112,000 commercial airline flights every day in the United States. Yes. So if just one of them crashes, why is it on the news? It's immaterial. Mm. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so really simple examples that we all see in everyday life, if you use those to talk about what we do, it reframes what we think about materiality. If the, ha- if the two-tenths of a penny to round up to 75 and set it down to 74, if that wasn't material, they wouldn't have done it. So don't ever believe that just because the number is small, it's automatically immaterial, just flat, not true. So that's one thing is understanding materiality and why, because remember, why, did that, why was two-tenths immaterial? Because of human behavior. Because right. the market will react. If the market didn't react, they wouldn't have done the 10 million and to move it two tenths. Right. So the we- second thing is stop doing the same damn thing all the time. That's how we let people force. Whether you're a controller, CFO, mm-hmm. or an auditor, it's, the, it's not the work itself. It's not checking the, checking the invoices and adding up the column numbers. It's doing it the same way all the time because you just taught people where not to put the fraud because they know where you're going to look. That's great advice, and, and the, you know human behavior. So why did they move? Why did WorldCom do that? Why did they book those expenses uh, and capitalize them so they increase the profitability? Uh, it goes to bonuses. It goes to the stock price. It goes to all of that stuff. So it basically, an emotion uh, is your wallet, and the size of the wallet can't create a lot of emotion. Uh, yeah, if that weren't true, salespeople would be paid hourly. <laughs> exactly, and. Um, And you're right, Gary. We could talk hours on this, and maybe we we do something and create a series of these because you've got you are the fraud guy. I mean, not in that sense, but you know more about fraud than than most, uh, especially in this profession, and can talk to real world situations that have occurred to help us become better at detecting fraud. So. Once again, I, I want to thank you for your time. I, I, this has been, we just touched the tip of this iceberg because there's so many other ones that, that, that um, come to mind that 
you know, I would love to learn more about because I didn't realize that what was easy best and then London, a few things that I didn't know. But thank you again. Great guest, great information. Uh, how, tell people how they can find you. Uh, if they simply Google my name, uh, according to Google, I'm the only person in the world with my name, and you'll get like <laughs> 40 pages of hits. Um, you'll find the Wall Street Journal profiles in the New York Times. Uh, just click any of those. They almost all contain our, our our contact information, how to get in. How to get, and one of the things that will pop up, we've got 60-some articles on our website. Uh, those will pop up. So just Google my name. That's the easiest way uh, to find us. And, you know, when we um, do the do the, if we do the next one and then we can talk about you know, my visit uh, interviewing Barry Minko at Lompoc Federal Prison and how the whole thing started. So what I'd like to know uh, from the folks that are listening, you know, if you like this and you'd like to dig deeper into some of these uh, uh, cases and I've got over 5000 slides on fraud cases, um, you know, click the like button, uh, send us an email and uh, kind of. Tell us what you tell us what you think, and and uh, you would like to have some more. Pete and I will put it together for you. Yeah, that's a great idea. So uh, one thing I will put a number of his articles uh, in the show notes for everybody, uh, as well as you get you know uh, you'll get to see uh, Gary. And if this is something you think that you would like to like to see more of, you can email me at peter at petermargaritas.com. You could go to any one of my social media sites and make a comment uh, about you know love the. Love uh, the episode on fraud. Love to hear more about that. Any feedback that you can give us, that would be great and greatly appreciated. So for now, Gary, thank you very much again. It's Thanks, Pete, for having me, having me on. I hope to see you soon. I hope we'll see each other soon as well. So thanks, guys. I want to thank Gary for taking time out of his schedule to be a guest on my podcast. I have put links to a number of Gary's articles in the show notes for your reading pleasure. In addition, we would like your feedback on today's podcast by answering a quick two-minute survey that you can find the link in the show notes. We greatly appreciate your feedback. In episode 22, which airs on February 18th, at the time of this recording, a guest has not been identified, but we'll have one for that episode So thank you for listening, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and share this episode with a friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.